Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome James Cameron to the podcast. James is a very influential figure within the international climate change community. He's been engaged with environmental and climate change policy for some 30 years, working as a barrister, financier, social entrepreneur and more, and as a trusted advisor to myriad climate change and environmental organisations. James is also what's called a friend of COP26, advising the UK government on the upcoming COP in Glasgow in November. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. So thank you very much, James, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. You're most welcome. Now, a very busy time uh, for you, I know, uh, in the, for, 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 for many involved in, in the various uh, negotiations and preparations for COP26. I know that's part of uh, one of the things you're involved in, but you um, wear many hats as well. Can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Well, I'm, I'm an international lawyer by training. I, I was trained as a barrister. I taught law as well as practiced. I specialized in international law, um, and within that, the law relating to, to the environment. I also did work on human rights and trade, and, uh, and I practiced from a commercial chambers, and so I had to learn uh, how to do the cases that uh, came through those doors. But from the beginning, uh, I wanted to make a connection between the theory and the practice, so I, I was much uh, influenced by a group of international lawyers at Cambridge where um, I was a graduate student, and one of my first teaching jobs were um, uh, Professor Philip Allett at Trinity, and then sort of lifetime friendship with now Professor Philippe Sands. And there were a bunch of us there who were really trying to rethink international law. And the climate change issue emerged as we were doing that. I think initially it was the Chernobyl incident and the failure of international law to properly deal with the consequences of Chernobyl states didn't settle disputes in law and gain compensation. They paid compensation to their own citizens, but they didn't really engage international law as they should have done. And then the climate change issue emerged. I wrote an opinion for Greenpeace on whether you could take the United States of America to the International Court of Justice for failure to act on climate change in 1988. And I, and I used the science that was available then, having had no background in it. I I did the research and uh, I made the case and I argued that although you could bring a, ca a case, the US would never submit to the jurisdiction of the international court. So you'd better negotiate an international treaty. And Philippe and I and colleagues in the newly formed Center for International Environmental Law, we raised some money and through the Ford Foundation initially, and we built a coalition of small island states called AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, which he did with the help of really brilliant folk in each of the regions, Caribbean, Pacific, Indian Ocean. And that's really where it started. I, we, we, we imagined what an international agreement would look like. We wrote it down and then we built a coalition to argue for it. And that still exists. AOSIS still exists. But that began a, it's a whole of career commitment to climate change. And I often, I often wish I'd never heard of the subject. It's so difficult and depressing sometimes. Um, but that's where the commitment to the subject began in the late 80s. And then it worked through negotiating the original agreement, Framework Convention on Climate Change, Kyoto Protocol, 
and years and years of trying to make a connection between the international legal regime and and domestic law, implementing it. And then in due course, I, having had the experience of creating an organization from scratch, I kept going with others, or, or always with others. So CL, Field, Foundation for International Environmental Law and Development, Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, later on trying to get a practice to emerge in the commercial legal world, um, building a practice at Baker and McKenzie, the big law firm. I always stayed independent as a barrister. I liked it that way. I still like it that way. But I loved building enterprises with others that were purposive, mission-driven enterprises. And climate change capital was probably the biggest of effort to do something fresh and new and different to challenge the financial services world to focus on climate change and you know calling an organization climate change capital was a pretty bold effort and we were the first to do that and all the funds we created were the first of their kind and the advisory business was focused principally on renewables and other ways in which we could do deals to get uh, technology deployed and solutions in the real economy and and now i have a portfolio where all of my enterprises, one way or another, small or large, are on some kind of mission to transition to a lower carbon economy, to to properly value nature, um, and to celebrate the solutions which are already present and more more to come. Lots of stuff on innovation, lots of stuff on uh, on how to use the interconnection between law, policy, and finance to move the resources where they're needed to make this transformation. And it's a compelling space. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're very busy, I can imagine, right now. And over the decades, you have a very granular uh, picture, feeling for what's happening and how things have changed and um, where we are today. So I'm just wondering, um, it's a big question, but uh, it, it, many interlocked environmental problems are uh, increasing at a tremendous uh, pace. What, what, what in particular in the current moment is on your mind, James? Well, you're quite right. There are interlocking crises, and it's very easy to feel overwhelmed by each of them, let alone their, their sort of amplifying effect biodiversity loss, huge, huge species decline, natural world devalued, climate change amplifying all sorts of other risks, access to water, access to energy, political conflict, regional conflict as a consequence, generational conflict. But actually, we are in a moment, I think, of exciting optimism for these reasons. One, at last, there does seem to be a better connection between political awareness, public opinion, and technology innovation. We haven't always been able to line those things up. There have been periods of time during my career where you've been legitimately optimistic about a big shift happening, including going way back to 1992 with the Earth Summit. I can remember leaving that thinking, that's great. We've really, we've really done something useful here. Likewise, after Kyoto really thought we'd done something useful and, and you know disappointment followed there are often these peaks of enthusiasm for change followed by something darker that uh, allows that enthusiasm to sort of ebb or be replaced by something that has a more immediate concern to decision makers particularly in government whereas now i genuinely feel like we've got a moment has to be grasped because they don't last where there's higher levels of public awareness, much better forms of global communication about the issue, and money, political power, technology, capacity to implement the ideas that do make a difference all seem to be improving. And the exponential is starting to work in our favor. Uh, you see it most clearly in power, because I'm pretty confident that in certainly the generation of power, and I would think I could extend it to the storage and distribution of power over a relatively short period of time, clean energy is going to win. So clean energy will beat fossil energy on cost, as well as 
uh, all the other benefits associated with weeding ourselves off fossil fuels in air pollution, public health, and security. So clean energy is just a better solution to the need for power. And that is becoming more obvious the more we win in the innovation and cost game. I think electric vehicles are starting to enter that space. And of course, the technologies converge. So clean energy generation, storage, electric vehicle, um, the infrastructure for all of the above, they, they are mutually supportive. They're still not all in place. The infrastructure's got a long way to go, but you can see the technologies being mutually enhancing. And that's how technology revolutions happen, don't they? It's never only one technology. It's when two or three or four all combine and feed off each other. Digitization is actually very helpful here because we can track uh, the flow of power and measure. You can measure carbon in so many more accurate ways now and value it properly through public policy. So I, I, I'm feeling pretty confident that in power and energy, uh, victory is in sight. Lots more to do in agriculture, in some of the hard to abate sectors, but even there, there are good signs in aviation, in shipping, in cement, in steel, aluminium. Um, that there's, there's a reason to be optimistic about the capacity for technology innovation there. But ultimately, you have to have a connection between that and sound government and public policy, uh, proper use of public funding to deliver public goods. And you have to punish the polluter as well. It's no good just having incentives. There has to be a price to pay for causing harm. So I'm still a fan of valuing carbon, pricing carbon. It's not a panacea, but it is essential. And I'm very interested in how these uh, ideas, sort of conceptual, philosophical ideas about valuing nature get translated into uh, how uh, an investment bank or a fund manager uh, develops a business model and a financial model and starts to, to, to see how revenue streams can be created via public policy and private contract that properly values nature. Again, not a panacea, but without it, we'll continue to undervalue natural systems and we'll pay a price for that as a society. So that's a space that I find particularly compelling right now where well, just as we're making progress on the sort of energy technology front, we need to shift our attention to natural systems in all of their complexity, properly value them in a philosophical sense, translate that into something that the treasury can apply in the way they do national accounting and the delivery and deployment of public money, but then ultimately extend that into how mainstream players in the financial markets uh, recalibrate their financial models because only then will you get the big money to flow in a different direction uh, than it currently does. Yes, well, um, uh, very interesting and and a very big topic indeed. The whole question of valuing nature, maybe one we can come back to later. Um, it uh, seems to be getting tremendous momentum at the moment. Uh, it's an idea; it's been around for for some time. But I would like to discuss that maybe in a little bit more detail. Sure. Um, uh, you're a friend of COP twenty six. I am. Um, what What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're in a, you've been an advisor uh, in in many. Uh, uh, cases over the years. Just wondering, what does it take to be a good advisor, James? Oh, that's an interesting point. It does vary. Yeah, it's a good point. So initially, as I said, um, through a foundation grant and a small group of idealistic lawyers and some very able people in that you know, we were able to find in places like the you know, Angela Cropper at CARICOM and you know, um, Robert Van Leerop, ambassador in, in New York, representing Vanuatu. You know, some amazing individuals. We were able to build AOSIS, and, and that became an institution that now exists. And, I mean, I, obviously, I, I have a very limited connection with them now, but for many years, that was kind of beyond advisory work. That was not hired gun stuff. That was a that was an enterprise building exercise 
to represent weak against strong and actually to represent the interests of the whole because the, the AOSIS, its advocacy for the best possible agreement on climate change is in the interest of all of us. You know, they are, they are the voice that should be listened to along with the other most vulnerable nations. They're our best protection against ourselves. So that's a kind of different form of advisory work that was really committed pro bono work um, and an incredibly satisfying and ultimately successful, I would argue. I think AOSIS has been a positive force. Uh, the agreements that we've got, full flawed though they are, inadequate though they are, are better than they otherwise would be thanks to their advocacy. Whereas the work I've done for presidency since, so I, I was a senior advisor to the Moroccan presidency, that was interesting. I did that work uh, following on some uh, McKinsey were hired to do, uh, you know, to, to be the consultants for Morocco during their presidency. And they found that there were limitations on what they could do uh, for the negotiations itself. And, and so I came in to help uh, the presidency, uh, particularly through the uh, ambassador who, who was the, if you like, the, the lead figure. In, in shepherding the negotiations to a successful conclusion. Uh, and then he asked me to organize and, and I guess filter and shift, sift and manage all of the other consultants uh, that were engaged, of uh, which there were several um, from many institutions. And then I also brought in my own team to help. Uh, that was a very satisfying experience because I, I think Morocco was a significant cop. It was very significant also because that was when Trump got elected. So um, we'll never forget that. Um, and we did some useful work, I think, getting the, the Marrakesh proclamation done, which was quite a good piece, I thought, of, of uh, uh, you know, political organization. It's not, it shouldn't be seen the same way as the Paris Agreement a more significant legal commitment. But the Marrakesh proclamation was a very good way of lining up interests across the world. I, I, thought, I found that very satisfying. It was a very demanding piece of work, but very satisfying and a pleasure to work with colleagues, and particularly some of the younger ones, uh, brilliant young folk like Eamon Shakawi, who was a fantastic colleague. And my own team did really well, I thought. Uh, in Morocco. Fiji followed that. And Fiji was at one level a fantastic chance to go back to my small island state beginnings and have a chance. It was, it was a very moving thing to have a, a small island state actually be the president of a process, albeit helped out massively by Germany, who, who provided the kind of host nation infrastructure and support. And of course, everything was held in Bonn, although we had a pre-cop um, out in Fiji. That was difficult work because well, even though, again, I was a senior advisor, had a fantastic team around me, uh, and, and that team is, was made up of uh, friends and colleagues from Baker and McKenzie, now, now who have started this new organization, Pollination, which I advise. But actually, the politics were very difficult in Fiji. Uh, Fiji had very little in the way of its own resources. Um, really was a stretch for that country to be able to play this role. Incessant traveling, um, all sorts of tensions that were hard to fathom inside the politics, the political realm of Fiji that we would never, ever be on top of. Um, it was just a hard grind. Presidencies go on for more than a year, too, so... Uh, because you have kind of overlap with the next presidency. Was, that was a very difficult advisory role. But one of the things I did do that I felt, again, satisfaction from doing hard though it was, is that I worked with the speechwriter of the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister uh, Frank Banirama. And uh, Graham was a fantastic colleague. He really knew how to craft a speech for the home audience in Fiji, and, and I wanted to craft speeches that resonated with other negotiators and reached outside Fiji. 
and was able to connect to themes that were bigger than the individual national interest and the presidency ought to express. And and so I, he and I wrote everything. I mean, every single pronouncement over the whole of the presidency, and 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 prepared for every single meeting of which there were countless. <laughs> that, that's that's uh, intense. Yeah. Um, how 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 are we doing? Uh, it's a big topic. I don't really want to go into all of the 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 IPCC and and it's. Uh, it's such a uh, a big and involved area, but I, I guess we're coming up to uh, COP twenty six. Um, we were meant to have this kind of ratchet mechanism at the end of twenty twenty for the Paris Agreement, uh, the the commitments, the national commitments, and so forth. Um, and um, there, you know, there, there, there are uh, voices that that uh, it's it's a lot. I mean, on the ground, a lot less has happened than 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 one had hoped for. And I'm just wondering, um, can you give a little bit of an overview as to you know uh, the commitments that were made, how we're getting on with those? Yeah. Are, are they are they really ambitious commitments? Are they being realised? Yeah. And uh, what what what? Uh, I guess you know. It, it, again, it's it's very complex and. And a lot to be discussed, but and, and what we would hope for in COP twenty six. Yeah, so, uh, so no, it's all fine and understood. There are. Um, it's a very difficult thing to assess easily, but let me try. I think the climate negotiations have been successful on their own terms, but are still falling well short of what is required, and they're revealing the limitations of a truly multilateral process with now thanks to today's a big day because uh the us have rejoined the climate uh uh club as it were and that'll make a big difference to the energy and commitment and seriousness of political intent uh that the process needs um but it's still not enough and it's still too slow and there are various procedures that are frankly embarrassing. If they were televised, people would be unimpressed. <laughs> um, and you know, I just to take the Fiji experience. I, I, I thought it was a fantastic effort by Fiji to take on that role and to turn the negotiations into a place where you could really recognise the consequences of climate change on a vulnerable country like Fiji. And you know, we we put a lot of effort into that communication. Uh, just so people could realise, even though they were in Bonn, that, that this was all about the future of Fijians in Fiji and others like them who are really exposed to risk. And you can't underestimate the importance of that, uh, even whilst you can express frustration at the inadequacy of the process to deliver the change that you need now. The communication did matter. Now, having said that, there have been, I think, four cyclones in Fiji in recent months. And COVID has really whacked their economy. Things are hard out there. And, and of course, it's true that the most vulnerable nations have not had the protection that they need from the consequences of climate change, certainly not in, the, in what it gets called rather, I think, ineffectively, the adaptation problem, resilience and adaptation. These are, these are the jargony words we use. But the plain fact is that these countries are hugely at risk from climate change and the people who live there are at risk and their futures are made more limited because of climate change. But the truth that was there at the start when we worked with AOSIS is there today that the, the, the way to help Fiji is to solve the problem where most of the emissions are. And, and they are in the developed countries and in China and now increasingly in India. So that the, the Paris Agreement was right to make the problem universal where everyone can contribute to the solution, but we still haven't got to the stage where the contributions are sufficient to prevent the risk um, to countries like Fiji and other most vulnerable nations. And we got a bit distracted by the promise of 100 billion being moved you know, from treasuries in the in the northern and western countries to the rest of the world, that number just got stuck. Uh, we know where it came from, <laughs> um, but it's a bit it's a bit irrelevant. The number is both too small; it's just 
ridiculously small by comparison to what is required, but it's also not really the point. Moving money from uh, the Treasury in the UK to in, in relatively small amounts to the rest of the world, uh, you know, it isn't really what counts. What counts is how the global economy functions and how everyday decisions made in everywhere where uh, economic decisions are made are made in a way that reduces risks and opens up opportunity for for money to flow in a different direction. Yeah, and it isn't yeah. ever going to be delivered from one government to another, at least not in the right amounts, and not fast enough. It's fair to say there's been tremendous momentum, as you said at the beginning, as you pointed out, really, uh, in, in public opinion and much more awareness and, and, and the pol polarization clearly still there and, and in, in parts of America and so forth. But tremendous momentum. Uh, it's, it's on uh, the people's minds, um, the general public, uh, climate change, climate, global warming and, and, and so forth. Um, do you think that the, the governments have, uh, I mean, another big question, trying to generalise, but are, are up to speed with where the uh, public opinion is? Well, it, they, they, it, it's an initiative process. It depends very much on your political culture. Um, I, I do think that the change in administration in the US is uh, hugely important. It allows several things to happen at once. It allows a better alignment uh, with uh, huge power blocks like China and the EU, uh, supported by significant commitments made recently by Japan and Korea and the UK to be you know, aligned, aggregated. And at the same time, that takes away reasons for inaction in others. So it becomes a harder political task to say, well, we're not going to do anything until China does until the US does, or we can't get out of step with our major trading partner because uh, we'll lose competitively. Those arguments have been made by people who wanted to go slow for years and years and years. They were always bad arguments. They were always totally flawed, but they were yeah. successful. Yeah. And they did hold things up. I mean, they, the speech by Trump in the Rose Garden when he um, withdrew from the Paris Accord and, and uh, the language that they use and got all his words jumbled up was virtually everything he said was upside down. It was just gibberish and, and had no real connection with the reality of how the US economy was developing then um, economically efficient job creating solutions to climate change and and how the coal industry in particular was already in decline and was never going to get rescued despite all the political rhetoric that emerged, which again was politically successful for him, but did nothing to solve the real world problem, which uh, other people would have to pick up the, uh, the strain for. And that essentially you know, is, is, is where we are now. Now the politics have shifted uh, political consciousness is obviously connected to a wider social consciousness, and it has shifted. And people like David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg have done a wonderful job with that. And it's quite likely that some of the more uh, angry and and frustrated voices, uh, but which, by the way, are right, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate emotion uh, about the failure to act on climate change, at least now have the support of, uh, of, of a radical middle, uh, a centre that sees that the change can be made in key parts of the economy. And, uh, you know, suffering is not the consequence. I mean, you know, think of all the articles that were written and they still get written, I'm afraid, um, in, in the, the right of centre and right wing press in the UK. Uh, constantly belittling a renewable energy uh, on the basis that if, if the left are for it, then I must be against it. Um, yes, in Texas, in Texas, Texas they're blaming now, the, unbelievable the, the ignorance, blaming the meltdown in the unbelievable. energy. Unbelievable. Yeah, just immediately people are standing. And of course, it takes 30 seconds to disprove all that, but politically, it still seemed to be a viable argument.
But even, even the Daily Mail and Daily Express are starting to write things in favor of sustainability or seeing opportunity in the change. So I, yes. I, I'm feeling yeah. that when this, uh, and you've seen the, the consequence of the Biden administration on our own government, who immediately lifted their game. Uh, climate change goes in to the agenda of the G7. Uh, it, even that our trade negotiations, which let's face it, were being set up in order to do a deal with the US under Trump, hence bringing in people like former Prime Minister Abbott uh, into the trade negotiating team, uh, that, that strategy will get nowhere now in the US because the Biden administration is not in the least bit interested in doing a trade deal on those terms and sees climate change as more important and has already given the instruction out to all of the departments of state, including trade, that they have to have a plan to deal with climate change. So, so even here, where we have a pretty good track record on international diplomacy on climate change, but still needed to lift our game in this year of our presidency, the Biden victory has helped. And yeah, so yeah. I, I am feeling more optimistic about COP26. Actually, we probably needed the delay. I don't think we had, because of Brexit and other reasons, we, we, we had not given it adequate attention. Uh, as people always underestimate how hard it is to be a president of a COP process. Now we've got a bit more time. The themes we've chosen, I think, are good ones. And we've got a good climate champion in Nigel Topping, who is a very good collaborator and can bring sort of outside forces in, which is part of the role that climate champion has, uh, which the French were very good at promoting, so that you can assemble on a kind of parallel stage to the formal negotiations, those real world actors, those forces in the real economy who are capable of making their own decisions and enforcing and implementing them, who can deliver a real world outcome supportive of the objective of the convention. It's really important that that functions well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'd like to come back to COP26 a little bit, uh, 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 get your, your views on that. I mean, you mentioned this question uh, of capital and, you know, not being enough, but still something and, and you know, the, the model of transferring governments, transferring capital and so forth. I'm, I mean, Mark Carney recently described net zero as the greatest commercial opportunity of our age. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It is because you know great wealth is made um, in in big transformations where risk is absorbed and processed and distributed and uh, a, you know a pioneer can get a follower and the follower gets a movement behind them. I mean that, that's how you know, and this climate change space is is complex because pretty much every aspect of the economy is affected. Uh, and it's not like uh, some of the other recent technology innovations that have entered a relatively open space. Their technology is being so innovative and distinct that they didn't necessarily have to displace an existing one, certainly not one that was heavily regulated like energy. So the transition has been hard won. It's coming, but it's taken a long time. But that's why I mentioned the exponential, because... When, when things move very, very quickly when two things combine, which I believe are, are happening now. One is change of consciousness. How does that happen? It's a kind of mystery. Why is something that seems totally impossible suddenly becomes obvious? And it just, it, it, we, we've all got experiences of it. There are amazing, often social shifts. You know, look at, look at, the, look at the views on, look at the views on same-sex marriage. You know, how, how quickly that shifted. Um, even in a place like Ireland, I might want to <laughs> emphasize, you know, suddenly after years and years and years of one point of view being dominant, it, it goes. And so we have change of consciousness happening on the climate change issue at the same time as we have innovation operating according to, you know, well understood principles of exponential change that happen in technology innovation in particular. And the two, the two are converging. So that what that what that means from a, an investor point of view, are two things. One, 
if you are with that change, are you you are an early investor in that change, or you've picked that trend at the right moment, and timing is everything in finance, then the chances are you can make outsized profits if you stay with it and you manage your money carefully. Equally, and perhaps more importantly, when you have non-linear change, which is what we're talking about here, and Carney's been very good at emphasizing to the financial markets two types of transition associated with climate change, physical risk and the risk associated with changing the rules of the game. So the thing that really worries investors of all types is losing money, right? And, and losing money fast in a dislocated market where they don't have the opportunity to manage their positions. What they hate is the idea that they own something that becomes valueless. Stranded assets are a genuine fear. And now you can see the potential in some of the key fossil fuel uh, businesses are very substantial stranded assets. And so it's smart to be hedging. And this is actually the same for a country. So if you're an oil producing country, what you have to do now, and it, it, is, it is happening, is you have to hedge and in a big way. So you've got to go from high to low carbon. So whatever excess profits you're making, if you're like in the last oil, you need to be investing in clean energy. You've got to do that. You've got to go from high to low. And you know places like Saudi Arabia are, are doing it. Probably not enough, but they're doing it. That way, your sovereign wealth fund or your you know, future beneficiaries of your pension funds uh, can have a future that is not dependent upon selling something that causes harm to the planet, uh, uh, where there are alternatives that are cheaper and better. So that, yeah. that's a critical factor. That's why Carney and others are right, uh, that it's both uh, 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 investing uh, in a way that is in tune with a, a technology revolution and, a, and, and a, a set of policies designed to reduce climate change risk is both an opportunity to make money and an opportunity to avoid losing money. Yeah. Yeah. But do you feel comfortable with co corporations, which are essentially, you know, very narrowly focused on maximizing profits, being the spearhead, as it seems they now are, of our uh, climate change initiatives? Well, I, 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 there's some nuance there that needs introducing. I mean, first of all, most of our economy over most of the globe is actually small business, not big business. And most small businesses uh, make profits if they can, but it isn't the whole point of the enterprise. You know, there's an awful lot of business that is about doing the doing, whatever it is. You know, whatever the work is, that's what that business is for. And the profits are means to continue doing that work and live a life. So I have a tendency to be skeptical, particularly in the mainstream newspapers, generally write about big business as if that's the whole of the economy and it's not but to be fair it's not the small businesses that are at the heart of no, the sustainable no but goals. there's an awful lot sustainable development goals are actually being driven by large corporations yeah but there's but the large corporations the way to look at them is to do is to do with power and you have to accept uh that that power needs to be uh properly regulated so there's uh, an essential role for legitimate makers of rules, which for now at least are a combination of nation states and nation states acting uh, collaboratively in international agreements. So there is no. Th th so you're pretty comfortable with the, the balance that's developed over the last 20 or 30 years, the deregulation. Yeah, the power no, of it, corporation. Shi it shifted power to the corporation, and and there needs to be. Uh, and I think it's I think it's probably the best example of what climate change reveals what government is for. I mean, it, it absolutely is. It's essential that there are there are no solutions here without effective, responsible government. But the private sector, in all of its forms, including its big business form, has fantastic resources for solving this problem. Um, it, it's no 
there's no real value in demonizing them. I, I'm not impressed by the, for example... No, but at the same time, not demonizing them, clearly. But to, to, to say that there are limits, you know, to, 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 to say, well, it's, is it okay for a corporation to maximize its profits in various social activities like this? Is that okay? Or, or should we be... I mean, is the corporation fit for purpose to deal with these social environmental problems? Or should we be saying, listen, of course corporations should make a profit and you know and 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 that's okay but listen you know we don't want to see the vast sums of money that have been made through private equity financialization there, i mean a legitimate discussion at least it's not to, to to write off all the corporate behavior but to say hey listen you know financialization we've seen certain consequences of that we've yes. seen you know there's certain tax policies that have been put in place we've seen a tremendous inequality arise and a lot of that were political decisions supporting particular taxation structures Correct. So it's not a case of just you know, writing off uh, corporations per se, but d d is it okay, do you think, for corporations to, to literally maximize profits? Because that is, and you know better than most, is its fiduciary responsibility. Yes, but even there, there's, there are limitations. Now, I'm just challenging this idea that the corporation <laughs> is exclusive. So let, let me, before I get to that point, let me just say that I do think we have to evolve uh, the the legal structures around what a corporation is so that I could provide a clearer answer to your challenge. So I don't think it's okay for a corporation to be exclusively about maximizing profits, but I, I, I would argue that it isn't anyway. And well, that's an interesting question, the, the because if you look at the Delaware Supreme Court and the decisions that they make and where the decisions are ultimately made, you yeah, know, but when I speak to people, but those are you know, those are concepts that are that are very contestable. I mean, uh, the, the idea that the, the corporation is exclusively there for maximizing profit or shareholder value is very contestable. I don't believe that. That's an argument. It's an argument that's been backed by certain political points of view over the years, most notably in our cult, political culture and in the US, as an extreme example. But I think it's highly contestable. And if you talk to people about what's happening, what, what the view of the Delaware Supreme Court, and that matters. Yes, it does. You know? It does, but it's also challengeable. And don't forget, a corporation is a legal fiction. It's, it's a construct. It, it only... Well, like a construct that has managed to enhance its power legally yeah. in the Supreme Court in America in a, a, a extremely powerful ways in recent decades. So yeah. the, 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 it, the direction of travel is not necessarily a very... Uh, optimistic one, James. No, but it can change. I mean, if you look at the origins of the Joint Stock Limited Liability Company, which was an absolutely transformative idea that made made international trade and um, and massively increased the, the 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 capacity of basically the Dutch and the and the and the British uh, to create wealth for their societies, an immensely powerful idea. But it's an idea, and it can evolve, and it can change. Um, I happen to think that there are other forms of corporate structure that are that offer great promise, and the B Corporation is one of them. Um, I think corporations are essentially mini societies, uh, and they have to be treated as as social organisations, and they are not just about maximising profit. I think that's that idea is arid and and backward looking, and not fit for current purpose. But the organizations themselves have great power to deliver through management skills and the management also of the capital deployment and technology innovation. They are, they are absolutely part of the solution to the climate change right. issue. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, it's interesting to get, to get your views on that. And um, I guess it's a factual uh, case, you know, to say to what extent are the decisions made in large corporations driven by shareholder maximization. We've seen various examples of, of uh, more sustainable oriented companies coming under pressure. Uh, we've seen Danone recently under pressure. We've seen, uh, you know, Unity Unilever, under pressure. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's a whole big topic to discuss and, you know, and the direction of travel in terms of, you know, the law and so forth. Um, I, I just wanted to, to raise the question. Yeah, I, I think, it's, you, I yeah, think you know. I'm feeling fairly confident that, um, that that view of what the corporation is, is really under pressure and can be changed. Uh, I, I, I really do think that's likely. 
I also think yeah. we have to create different corporate structures that are really more to do with delivering public interest outcomes um, and are not in that negative sense, not for profit, which I found, I mean, I've always, uh, I started organizations that were considered charitable or not for profit. And I didn't like either of those words. I, I wanted an organization that was for something, not, <laughs> not for something. Right. And so yeah. I think there's a way to go to structure social organization for purpose that has the energy um, of a, uh, uh, a kind of corporation that's listed on a stock exchange or a private company uh, designed to increase the value of whoever owns it, um, yeah, but, is, yeah. but is fixed and focused on the delivery of, of public goods, which will have to be negotiated through your your uh, legal process, and behind that, of course, okay. your political, uh, your, your your democracy, of course, uh, the rules will have to get written there. But but I do think there's further innovation to be done on how we organise the institutions that we have to deal with the real world fact of climate change in a way that has sufficient capacity to innovate and drive the the kind of change that we need. Uh, in our economy, and I don't see that as being wholly contained within either the state or, or this powerful group of private corporations. Well, yeah, in well, interesting. And as you say, this is a pretty critical moment. We will see how this unfolds. I mean, you're probably very familiar with the billions to trillions agenda, the yeah. World Bank, you know, maximizing finance for development. You know, where if you look at the direction of travel on there, you know, there is a debate to be had, questions about that, you know, de-risking investments in, you know, in emerging markets. The direction of travel, I mean, as Daniela Gabor talks about, you know, the Wall Street consensus, you know, there are, uh, if you look at the direction of travel and the kinds of institutional frameworks that are evolving to support the kind of massive, you know, investments that we're looking at, I'm not sure I would be quite so confident. But that's, again, probably for a whole, yeah. <laughs> another, another area. I, 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 I would be interested, and this is probably, I don't, don't focusing just on, uh, on controversial issues, but maybe you could explain to me why uh, uh, Bex has become such a powerful idea um, within the climate, uh, within the IPCC in, the, in their modeling and so forth, the, the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. It seems <laughs> to be a pretty... Uh, controversial question, and uh, I'm just wondering: ha Have you uh, seen or any any sense of what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, there is a certain um, there's a certain amount of wish, wishful thinking in that um, in those charts that you see. So much of the effort is going to be delivered by these combination technologies that are, are not at scale. I've always been rather skeptical about. Uh, carbon capture and storage when uh, in climate change capital days when we were advising on these things we you know we could see that you'd need quite a high price for carbon to justify those sorts of investments and so many other things would be done first uh, and I was much more interested at that stage in what could be done with both natural systems um, where the complexity of a old growth forest is an extremely good place for sequestering carbon, as indeed are you know, seagrasses and mangroves and you know, the, the maritime sphere where, where one is already drawing down huge amounts of carbon, too much as it happens, but you can imagine enhancing the capacity of the oceans to sequester carbon through natural systems. I wanted more focus on that. I'm I'm open-minded actually about some of the direct air capture stuff and some of the uh, carbon capture and use uh, technologies, mm -hmm. which seem to be more compelling. Um, I'm also quite open-minded about uh, the creation of uh, fuels um, from you know from direct air capture and also from waste. There's an awful lot still to be done. To take, um, you know, in in bioenergy, in taking 
waste and creating either a, a liquid fuel or or a gas that can be that can be used. Um, but there's an awful lot of hope being placed <laughs> yes. on Bex that I think is misplaced. I, I yeah. don't believe that that's going to be as big a component of our uh, I don't know, so societal rescue as yeah. those charts. Maybe it's a shorthand. Maybe it's a shorthand for uh, new technologies and innovation, which which we can see are are really you know the pace is extraordinary. Really, every day you read, you know, and this is something that's been unfolding for some time. So, you know, it has certainly got a role to play, doesn't it? I wonder that the last few minutes, uh, elephant in the room, as it were, China. Mm. Well, what's your sense, or how do you read what's happening in China? It's really difficult, you know, um, Fergal. I I have some experience. It's a bit. Uh, old now because I haven't been there for a while. Although my old colleagues in China and climate change capital days are still uh, still a, an active group, and I still stay in touch with them. But we probably we deployed I think over a billion dollars in China, um, and I made many trips even before climate change capital. Many trips to China to talk about climate change and law, and I, I'm fascinated by the place. Um, but partly because of that, I, I'm aware of how little I know and how careful you must be to try and answer a question that you just asked me properly. So I'll, I'll do my best. I've just actually sent something via a, a good contact um, to test out an idea with the Chinese government for, for in preparation for COP26. And I would say this, you know, the leadership has signaled a very clear intent to make climate change a political and economic priority for the country. Uh, Xi Jinping has had one, two, three, four, five very serious uh, set-piece speeches on this subject recently. Um, they do see themselves as winners from a you know, technology race for solutions to climate change. And they know that they've got scale in their economy to drive down price, and they've done it already with solar, obviously, but several other technologies, electric vehicles, perhaps the most obvious right now. But there's pretty much a, a technology solution across anybody's economy that China could deploy at scale, reduce cost, and sell. And they see that. But they also have hundreds of millions of people living in the coastal margins, yeah. threatened by sea level rise. They have they have a huge problem with desertification. They have a huge problem with air pollution, we know, but it's also made worse by uh, the desert winds blowing dust across the cities. They have a massive public health care bill associated with it. They have allowed a certain amount of public protest, even in these more draconian times, for environmental crimes. You know, you really can get space to protest and to prosecute a corrupt local official if if there's you know pollution of a lake or uh there's some egregious planning decision that caused harm to uh to the natural environment you know that th there's a pretty robust response to that kind of behavior in china that allows those who campaign on environment just enough opportunity to be vigorous in their pursuit of more aggressive climate targets yeah but but, you know, the society is definitely uh, being organized uh, more ruthlessly uh, around control. And they're taking a more aggressive stance internationally. And there are consequences from that. I really do hope that in this year, where they have their own biodiversity COP, uh, and they're going to bring something significant in terms of commitment to the COP26, that these become areas where we can build a genuine collaboration, real mutual interest, and help soften some of the more unattractive aspects of China's current domestic and foreign policy. Yes, yes, a big topic indeed. Um, uh, COP26, what, what would be the, <laughs> a, a, a really uh, good outcome, yeah. do you think? So the, the, it's, it's quite easy to break up into blocks here, but there is something more interesting but more intangible that 
would characterize success that I'd like to be able to feel at the end of it. But initially, we have to complete work done on the agenda items that have been, uh, you know, should have been resolved at least two cops ago, but haven't been. (laughs) So, and of those, perhaps the most important is Article 6, which is on the on the use of carbon markets and other other devices, not just about carbon markets, but it's the use the, the ways in which public policy can be coordinated across uh, borders to incentivize the uh, the work that we want done to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. and that's that's really vital. If we can get that through, that's that would be a big win. And it would help make um, the commitments that are going to be brought forward in the nationally determined contributions, that are supposed to be more ambitious are more likely to be implemented. So that, so in addition to finishing the work agenda, the uh, the display of higher ambition uh, from countries volunteering their own targets needs to be made effective by uh, the proper implementation of these parts of the agreement that are still not quite done, like Article Six. So we've got to. We've got to arrive at the end of this with uh, plans put forward by governments that are credible, implementable, and financeable, that people are actually going to put money behind, public and private. And But around the edges of the formal negotiations, yeah, I want to see groups of both countries and other actors, sub-federal states, cities, companies, investors, civil society groups, self-organizing their own uh, solutions and, and, and meaning it and making sure that that's written into their private contractual relations in their supply chains and making sure that it provides continuity to some of the movements that we see great promise in, not least in things like electric vehicles and, and in the commitments to go to net zero in, in many of these large corporations. That, that's got to be that's got to be displayed in a way that you know, increases trust and confidence that the transition that we need to make is going to be made. And that's the intangible. This, is, this feeling of confidence and trust that uh, the rhetoric is more than that and it can be turned into something that is transformative in the real world. That's, that's the feeling you need to get. Let's face it, mm-hmm. most presidencies, if at least they finish their work agenda, can stand on a platform and say, ta-da, success. But whether it's real success or not is a different matter. And real success depends upon other factors, including this hard to describe, but but actually can be felt, this feeling that we're going to do this. This is going to be a massive societal effort. And actually... Life will get better having done it. It's going. To, it's a positive agenda, where one can feel confident that there is a better future ahead. That's something that you need to feel and can't really be just written down in a text. That's a great vision, James. What, what what's on the plate for you then for the next few months? <laughs> well, funnily enough, I've got a call very so- shortly to look at. Um, all of the nature-based solutions to climate change through the COP26. And, you know, I, I didn't really properly answer it before, but, you know, the Friends of COP26 group is a loose group of advisors. We're not inside the government, but but we are um, we are turned to for advice. And, and I have a call this morning on that theme. And I am going to carry on with my colleagues uh, trying to get... Uh, a, to meaningful commitment to, first of all, define nature-based solutions and then see what public policy instruments are best suited to properly value nature. And then once they're in place, to see uh, how uh, decisions can be made uh, to invest in those uh, projects and and landscape scale developments that turn that those principles into something actual. Uh, so that's a big, big task this year, uh, and one focused on 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 COP twenty six, but equally so as all the uh, all of the, the reimaginings of what the carbon market 
should be, having experienced what it was like before, including its failings. I've got to get it right this time. And then uh, a whole series of other things that I'm working on that are to do really to do with climate change litigation, um, using the law to challenge uh, those who abuse power or fail to act and cause harm to the environment, very, still very much connected with, if you like, the philanthropic funding of climate litigation around the world. And I still stay close to the small enterprises that have got innovative technologies to bring to bear um, you know, real solutions that need to be scaled. And, and for the most part, innovation tends to happen there first. Uh, before it becomes you know, scaled, often with the help of a large corporation, but most of the most of the rethinking that's necessary takes place in in smaller organisations, and I like working with them. Indeed, the you, you, nature-based solutions a big topic we didn't get to discuss. There seems to be tremendous momentum towards this valuing of nature. Yeah, some. Uh, within the financial community, we talked about Mark Carney, but more generally, um, it, it's it's a big topic. Do you do you expect to see significant change in that? People are talking about you know national accounts. People are talking about you know uh, certainly corporations and 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 more generally. Um, do you feel this is an idea whose time has come? I do. I really do. It, it's it's absolutely necessary just because of the way we account for everything else. If we didn't have GDP, if we didn't have ways of measuring the performance of countries that failed to pay attention to natural systems, we wouldn't need to have this discussion at all, but we do. And therefore, there has to be a change in, in perception of what is valuable. Now, at some point, that does mean that you have to put a price on something. But it's not the only way you do that. You can express value in other ways. Price is not the only one. So what I'm hoping is that when we have this discussion throughout the course of this year, we start to explore, all right, in principle, we want something called natural capital to develop as a, as a, uh, a yardstick for governmental performance. That work is going to be a combination of treasury, Office of National Statistics, you know, people who specialize in the metrics for governmental performance. And then we need to draw that down into, well, what does that mean for investment? That means you shouldn't invest in a way that destroys natural capital, right? So these things should not be done. And, and you've got to think about how best to regulate that. Formal laws, but also principles and practices that get applied to the business of financing and that's got to feed through to education and training and professional standards and remuneration all of that's got to happen that's a big cultural shift but it's happening just just beginning and then finally how do you build an asset class that mainstream investors including pension funds which basically is all our money i mean there's no real difference it's all our money whether it goes through the treasury or through our pension, it's our money, and we don't want it being spent destroying nature. And we do want it being spent enhancing natural systems for our benefit, including for our health. So how do we do that? How do we incentivize that? And you have to work with the grain. This is where perhaps the difference between this is a more radical you know, anti-capitalist point of view and, and my own. I think you've got to You've got to effect a kind of judo throw on the markets. You've got to show them a revenue stream that they can put into their financial model and make it clear that they, that they therefore have a real incentive to invest in something which restores a natural system, uh, a peatland, a wetland area, um, new woodland in this country. And I, I, I see that as essential. If there were uh, some perfectly benign uh, governmental capacity to deploy all the resources necessary to deliver that outcome, I might take a different view, but I don't see that. And I have a suspicion of the kind of power that that would require to be in the hands of government. 
And so my uh, my concern over abuse of power is to balance between corporate and state. So I would prefer to see a legal regime structured that properly valued nature and properly incentivized those who want to enhance the value of nature to do that and to do it in a, in a skillful way because there is a risk that with this excitement over natural capital and nature-based solutions, uh, some things are done at scale that are not real answers. We need to deploy this money very skillfully. It needs to go to the right, way to, you know, it needs to be deployed in the right way to the right place. And people who know that place need to be involved in the decision making. Otherwise, we'll we'll screw up. We'll we'll deploy a lot of money in the wrong way, and there'll be um, yeah. unintended, perhaps, consequences, but consequences which are negative, not positive. Yes. Well, inevitably, in these uh, discussions, you've. Uh, touched on uh, many, many very interesting and deep points. And uh, we could certainly have uh, another discussion or two. I guess my worry is that we have seen uh, some uh, um, malignant impacts from ongoing financialization, securitization, excesses in that and that we potentially will see more of that when we see ramping up of financialization when it comes to the biggest, what you might call, uh, asset class in the world, which is, you know, potentially Gaia. So that's a whole yeah. other area, really. Uh, and and the fascinating to get your perspective and the momentum there. And really to hear your your your, your perspective, all of the, the the great work you've been doing on on many fronts in in the legal uh, side of things, in the handholding and advisory side of things. And I thank you so much for your time today, and uh, uh, wish you all the best. Uh, it's a pleasure, Virgil. Thank you very much for um, for asking me to come on your show, and uh, all the very best to you and uh, and and your audience. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Aaron Stibbe's book, Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology and the Stories We Live By, which has recently been published in a second edition. This groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder, more ecological world. It's supported by a free online course called The Stories We Live By. Just type the name into Google and you can find it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.